Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Timothy chapter 1 in your Bible. Let's continue to worship our Lord through uh, His Word uh, today. Second Timothy chapter 1, I want to confess to you that my heart sank uh, last Thursday when Dr. Alistair Begg stood up and announced and read a portion of this text that I'm about to read. But I was so grateful when he didn't preach on it. He preached on some verses right after uh, where we're going to be. So, uh, you know, and I I say that, uh, you know, just somewhat in in lightheartedness, but um, in all seriousness, uh, just a few weeks ago, um, God just uh, compelled me uh, to this this passage of Scripture, to come to this passage of Scripture uh, primarily uh, for this occasion. Uh, today, I've shared some thoughts about it in some other contexts, but I, I believe God has something that He wants to say to us. Second Timothy chapter one, uh, verse fifteen. Let's start there. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered to me at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I love the relay race uh, in track and field competition. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, I'm sure most of you are. Relay race is when four individual runners join together to run what's called a leg of a race in succession. And in between those legs, they they pass an object uh, called a baton like this. Now, I'll tell you why I particularly like the relay race. Number one, it's a team sport. It's a team event uh, where a group of guys have to work together as opposed to, as opposed to in, an individual just being the one that's aiming to get, uh, get the medal. Another reason I like it is it, it, because it, it's interesting that the team that wins the relay race is not necessarily the team whose last runner crosses the finish line first. The team that wins a relay race is the team whose last runner crosses the finish line first carrying the baton. 
you've got to get the baton around the track. And another reason I like it is because it takes timing, it takes coordination, because the baton has to be passed between runners in a prescribed lane, a prescribed zone on the track. If not, you're disqualified. 1988, the United States 400-meter sprint relay team was predicted to run away, no pun intended, with the 400-meter relay event at the Seoul Olympics, hands down. We had blistering fast runners, uh, and we, we had multiple ones of them, and everybody was predicting that that would happen. But the United States didn't win the gold medal. It was in one of the preliminary rounds that... Between the third and the fourth leg, they bobbled the baton and ended up passing it out of the allowed zone. Seems that uh, Calvin Smith was a little bit unsteady in his handoff and Lee McNeil was, didn't provide a stable target for him to put in it. And so they crossed the line they were allowed to, to make the exchange in and the event was over for the United States. They were disqualified. Here, here's the question that... That I, that I want you to think about with me this morning. And that is, what, what is it like? What is it like to experience the tragedy of, of losing a race like that, not because you don't have the fastest runners, and not because you don't have the, the best team, but because you simply didn't exchange the baton in the zone that you were allowed to do so? The Apostle Paul considered what we do, this ministry leadership thing, this calling that we have. He considered this to be a relay race. It's all over chapters 1 and 2. You see it here as he talks in verse 3 in chapter 1 about his ancestors passing him the baton. Then if you look down at, at verses 5 and 6, he, he, he basically says, I, I passed this baton to your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and, and I'm, I'm convinced that they passed it on to you. And then you come over to part of the text we read a minute ago into chapter 2 and verse 2, and he tells Timothy there, now it's your turn to pass it along to some other people. This is what is going on here. But maybe even more significantly, the Apostle Paul understood the baton that he and Timothy were passing from one to other to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you notice it. He mentions it at the end of verse 8. The gospel, he says, share in the suffering for the gospel. And then in 9 and following, he describes the nature of it. Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through what? Through the gospel, right? This is what he's talking about. And down in verse 13, he calls it the pattern of sound words. And in verse 14, a good deposit which has been entrusted to you. Paul understood the gospel baton that was being passed from one generation to the next to be the gospel. This thing that we hold so dear and precious. And he also considered it every individual, every individual who was beckoned into this race to run his or her leg of the race faithfully and to endure everything that would come against them in that. This is why he tells Timothy in verse 8, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. And then he says in verse 11, he, verse 11, he said, we, uh, verse 12, which I also suffer, but I am not ashamed. And in just a moment, we're going to see Onesiphorus down here, who we're told in verse 16, 
15 was not ashamed either and run, he ran his leg of the race. That, that, that's what this passage of Scripture is about. In the first part of the 6th decade A.D., Rome was beginning to crumble. And Nero was turning up the heat of persecution on Christians. And Timothy was struggling a little bit with his leg of the race. His hand was not very steady in the handoff. He wasn't providing a stable target. First and Second Timothy tell us all kinds of reasons that Paul identified why this was happening, or at least how it was look. He was being assaulted by false teachers. He had he had some health problems. He 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 he, he was inexperienced, and people in his church were coming against him uh, and resenting him for that and pushing back against his leadership. He apparently was a little bit timid, and he was lacking in self confidence, and all of these kinds of things would put, put Timothy in a great place of discouragement and frustration, and and quite frankly, he wanted to quit. He was ready to throw in the towel on the race and walk off of the track. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter right here to say to him, don't you dare, don't you dare even think about quitting on this gospel relay. And he encourages him to do whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to not only stay in the race, but to endure his leg and make sure, make sure he preserved the gospel in his generation and passed it along faithfully to those who would come behind him. Now you know the connection. Beloved, we, we have been handed this gospel baton. Each and every one of us. doesn't matter whether we're faculty, students, staff, campus guests who name the name of Christ. Every single one of us have been beckoned into this race, handed this baton, and called upon to give our lives, to give, to give our lives, to sacrifice everything about us for the sake of preserving it in our generation and passing it on to people who come behind us. I want to show you how we do that. How do we, how do we, how do we provide how do we provide stable targets for those who, who are passing it to us? How do we run our legs faithfully and with endurance? And, and how, do we, how do we keep our hands steady when we're ready to hand it off to other people? I, I think it's helpful if we organize the passage that I read just a moment ago this way. There is some inspiration that Paul gives us in the last part of chapter two, verses 15, uh, chapter one, verses fifteen through eighteen, and then he offers some instructions in the first three verses of chapter three, chapter two, and then he offers some illustrations in the next three verses after that. The inspiration helps us to answer the question: Who do we emulate in this? What kind of runners do we need to be like in this race? The instructions help us answer the question, what do we do in order to run our leg of the race faithfully? And the illustrations help us answer the question, so how do we do it? How, do, how, how exactly are we to accomplish that? So let's start with the inspiration. Paul begins in, in the part that I read a moment ago, which is part of this whole, this whole scenario of this race that he's describing here. He, he begins with, with a description of some individuals, some examples of some individuals who, who ran this race, or at least started to run this race. He puts on the table 
The picture of a couple of guys who ran this race and quit, who essentially deserted the gospel, and then he turns us on to a guy who ran this race well, who, 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 who was devoted to the gospel. We don't know a ton about Figilus and Hermogenes, but what we know is that they, they turn their backs on Paul in one of his most difficult times. It's one thing for the world to push back against your life, your work, your ministry, but it's an entirely different thing, an even more painful thing when a co-laborer in the gospel, especially one or ones that you have poured your life into, uh, walk away from, from the race. They walk away from the ministry. Some of you have experienced that, and we, we don't have any categories sometimes for that going on. But these things are, 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 are a reality in our lives and ministries. They, they come to the surface all too often. Here were a couple of guys who threw in the towel, turned their backs, and walked away. But, but I want you to understand, it wasn't primarily Paul that they deserted. Which is the case when anytime someone we've discipled or whose lives we've poured into, someone we've shepherded in our church, walks away from the faith, gets out of the game completely. The, the, the primary thing Paul is talking about here is not that they deserted him, but they deserted the gospel. That's what's going on before and after this passage of Scripture. It's the entire context. We just saw it in chapter 1 in the references to the Gospel. You come over into chapter 2 on the back side of the text we read in verse 8. And he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my Gospel. Figilus and Hermogenes' primary crime was not deserting the Apostle Paul. It was deserting the Gospel. You understand that the default of the man means the default of his doctrine. And in this case, the doctrine is the gospel. When someone walks away from this race, when they walk away from this race or even kick into neutral, it is the gospel that is demeaned. But Paul comes on the other side and then he gives a, a contrast, a contrasting example of a guy who, who, who ran the race well. He's named in verse 16 as Onesiphorus. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the trend in Christian culture today among parents to name their kids uh, with biblical names. I'm a little bit intimidated by that. People ask me the names of my kids, and I tell them, you know, well, Clint, Shane, Dallas. It's kind of like they were all conceived watching John Wayne movies or something, you know. It's just like, oh, your kids are Zechariah, and, you know, and. Jedediah and Josiah and you know and you got the Marys and the Marthas and you got the Caleb's and the Joshua's but nobody names their kid Onesiphorus. Be kind of awkward, wouldn't it, for Dr. Aiken to be holding up his iPhone showing you his newest grandkids saying, "Here's a little here's a little Onesiphorus." It's not happening. Nobody's going to do that. Why? Why not? Maybe we ought to because it's a good name. It means help bringer. And Onesiphorus lived up to his name because Paul describes a time when Christians were hightailing it out of Rome and, 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 and Onesiphorus was, was tackling a hard task of locating a prisoner in the, in the city of Rome in general would be tough enough. But now he's swimming upstream against all of these fearful faces coming out of Rome. And the Apostle Paul says he did it and he kept doing it and he found me and he, he refreshed me and he encouraged me. Here's, here's a guy who sacrificed 
himself. A lot lot of Bible scholars look at this passage and they see the prayer in verse 16 for Onesiphorus' household and the past tense references that are here and they conclude that Onesiphorus probably lost his life in this endeavor. He gave his life advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, being a part of a team that was getting the gospel to as many people as they possibly could. And he was doing it against the grain. Listen to me, come in here real close. Against the grain even of the host of believers in that time. They were trying to find safety. They were trying to find a a, a good place that they could get because of the persecution. You know that we live in a rock star Christian culture. We all have our favorite preachers, our favorite musicians, uh, our our favorite spiritual heroes. And and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself if we approach that, uh, you know, with, with 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 a healthy perspective. But the reality is, the reality is most of our spiritual heroes are individuals that live under bright lights in very broad platforms. They... The, They're not people like Onesiphorus who got three verses of commentary in the Word of God. Funny name. Now, this is a a guy whose life probably was relatively short in comparison to what most of ours probably will be and even most of the people in that day and time. And it was laid on the altar of God as a sacrifice for the sake of the Gospel. It was a guy who was like a David Brainerd who lost his life at age 29 trying to get the gospel to American Indians living under incredible, incredibly difficult suffering and circumstances both physically as well as spiritually. And this Onesiphorus was like a, a Jim Elliot who was killed at 29 trying to get the gospel to the Aka Indians and the, the, the remote parts of Ecuador. Guys whose, whose lives and the length of it weren't the issue, but the issue was the advancement of the gospel. We could stand in our day and time for a few more of us to have our heroes to be guys like this. For us to be inspired, encouraged, and challenged to, to greater heights in, in taking the gospel to unreached people because there, there are people that God has beckoned onto this race who said, I, I, I'm going to leave it all on the track. I'm going to bring nothing off of the track. Everything is negotiable, including my life. And the Apostle Paul pushes Onesiphorus forward and said, just take a look at this guy. And essentially, essentially says to Timothy, you be like him and you make it your life's calling to raise up a generation of people like him. We know this by the first words in chapter 2 in our English translation when he says, you then, based upon this, based upon a life like this, a story like Onesiphorus' story, you then take some action and build your life in ministry driven by a story like this. And so that, that brings us to the instructions. This is where the Apostle Paul begins to talk about what we do. What we do to, to run this race or as a part of this race, receiving the baton, handing off the baton. And Paul draws, appears here, three words of exhortation, if you will, to each and every one of us as he speaks directly to Timothy. First of all, I want you to look at this. He says, 
Rely on the resource of grace. This is one of those phrases, one of those places, I think, that it almost takes a back seat because of the emphasis of the second word of instruction that he gives about passing the baton on. But this is where Paul starts with an imperative command telling Timothy to do something, to be intentional about something. And that was to find his strength, his ability to do this, to to take the baton, run his race, pass it on to other people, to find his ability and strength to do that beyond himself. Specifically in the grace that is provided by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is manifested in who he is and what he has done. Now those are those are no trite words. This is no trivial matter here. Apostle Paul uses a passive in the language of the New Testament to mean to be acted upon from something outside yourself. And it's kind of weird. It's kind of awkward. He's telling Timothy, he's telling Timothy, you, you do this. So he's telling him, you make something happen that you really can't make happen. And, and, and the idea that is conveyed here is this is what, this is what you've got to lean on. This is what you, you must depend upon for your ability to, to run your leg of the race in there. And that is the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, most of the time when we think of grace, we think about the gift and the help of God has provided for us at conversion and the forgiveness of our sins by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is. And and that's why that acronym is helpful of God's redemption at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. It's good to, to remember it that way. But we know, don't we, that grace doesn't stop at conversion. The same gift and help that we need, each and every one of us need for life and service is found at the very same place and God continues to apply it. His his help and His gift and His mercy and it is the secret, it is the key to not only you and I starting this race because that's not my primary concern. You're sitting here because you started the race. But what happens moving forward from this place? That That's, that's what's going to determine. That's what's going to determine whether we are relying on this otherworldly power. Maybe, maybe it's helpful for us then to rework, to rework that acrostic, that acronym for our purposes in, 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 in this ministry that we have. Maybe we need to remember it as God's resources applied to the Christian experience. Because that's what Paul's talking about here. This is what he's saying. Timothy, you lean into and lean on the otherworldly help of God. There is no other way that you're going to be able to do that. Do you remember? He actually already mentioned this back in chapter 1, verse 8, at the very end when he says, Share in the sufferings for the gospel. How? By the power of God, he says. It's the only way this kind of race is going to be run. My testimony of my journey to theological education is, is one of those reminders that sometimes God changes our passions along the way. When I was a master's student, I swore two things. Number one, I would never do doctoral work. Number two, I would never teach. I had absolutely no interest in either one of these things. All I wanted to do, I knew God had called me to preach. I wanted to check that box off and finish my master's and I wanted to go preach. And the place that I saw guys getting to do that most was in the pastorate. So I kind of figured that's where I would end up. And I did. I planted a church, ended up pastoring it for eight and a half years. And, and, and it was in the midst of that that God taught me a lesson, a lesson that has haunted me my entire ministry. And I pray that it never stops. 
I was part of a network of a number of pastors, most of which were older than me, more seasoned than me, and, and, and guys that I was grateful to learn from. But in the course of that journey, I came to the realization that some of those guys whose lives and ministries, by all the standards that we measure success and effectiveness in Christian culture today, would have been considered to be successful and effective pastors. Big buildings and large budgets and people joining their churches and, 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 and all kinds of programs and all of those things. You look from the outside and, and, and they appear to be clicking on all cylinders. But I had the opportunity to be with some of those guys offline. And I came to understand by hearing some of the jokes that they told, some of the language that they used, jokes and language that I know that they would never want any of their congregation to ever hear them use. I came to understand this, and I pray you'll never forget it. And that is that it's possible. It is possible for us to do this thing that we do. This thing called ministry leadership. However that looks in each of our lives. To do this our entire lives. To do it our entire lives. And the commentary on our lives by the people that watch us would be that person is successful and he or she is effective only to get to the end of our days to realize that the real commentary in our life was he or she did it, devoid of otherworldly power, the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. There was nothing supernatural. I want you to think about it. It scares me to death to think that I could read enough books, get enough education, go to enough conferences, refine enough skills, and maybe throw in a little bit of a charismatic personality such that people would want to follow me and, and they would let me lead them in a, a particular direction. And, and consequently, the organization grows and the busyness overflows out of it. And yet do every single bit of it devoid of otherworldly spiritual power. It happens all the time. That's why this is no small word of instruction here. If the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, you, you be desperate. Lean into the otherworldly power of God, the grace of God. And Paul was constantly saying this about his own ministry. He was constantly calling upon God to show himself strong through his weakness. He said to the Corinthians at the beginning of his first letter, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but they were a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He understood that he had in 2 Corinthians this treasure, this gospel treasure in an earthen vessel so that God's power would flow through him and the excellency would be of God and not in him. He comes to the end of 2 Corinthians talking about that thorn of the flesh. And he says, I, I prayed three times that it, it, God would take it away from me. And what the Lord said was, my grace, listen, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so the Apostle Paul says, whoa, whoa, if that's true, bring it on. Therefore, most gladly will I boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. Because when I am weak, when I'm weak, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. And so he comes here and he says, you want to be like Onesiphorus? You want to raise up a generation of Onesiphorus? It's not going to come from your education and your equipping. All of those things are good stewardship of this gift. But ultimately, it's going to be because of the otherworldly power that God gives you through His grace manifested in Christ Jesus. 
So he says, rely on the resource of grace. And then he, he says, develop devoted disciples. No, no, develop devoted disciple makers, Paul says. Not just disciples. What you've heard from me in verse 2, among the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In the language of the New Testament, the word entrust, is, it means to commit to. It's used in a, a different form a couple of times. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in the, in the first chapter, where the, the Apostle Paul says at the end of chapter verse 12, uh, it's been entrusted to me. And then at the end of verse 14, he says it's, it, it's now entrusted to you. And now he comes over and he says, now you entrust these to some other individuals some individuals that you'll be able to pass this baton onto. And make sure, make sure as you do, be intentional. Proclaim the gospel to everybody. I think Paul would say we find in other places, but here, here he's specifically concerned about this, that there is an intentionality in our ministries that we identify some people who have demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy with weighty things, with important things, with lofty things. And he says, you, you pass the baton on to those individuals. This was what Jesus did with His ministry. Could have been a lot more spotlight, a lot larger platform. But He chose a stewardship. A stewardship of taking 12 guys and pouring His life, reproducing them into them, so that when He was gone, when it was time for Him to check out, there will be some people who were ready to give their lives for this deal. And you and I are sitting in this room today because it worked. It took. And that's what Paul says. Hey, let me encourage you with something. If it hasn't already, the day's going to come, I promise you, where most, if not all of you, will find yourself in a ministry situation where you feel like your hands are tied. You, you, you feel like there, nobody wants to do anything big for God. People are not following your leadership. They, they, they don't want to go to the places that you want, to, want them to go. They're not really responding to your preaching and, and, and your teaching. And you feel like you can't cast vision and you can't lead. And if you're not careful, the temptation will come at that point for you to believe that the only way for you to ever be effective in ministry is for you to find another place. Go somewhere else. Could I just tell you, you can always, always do this. There will always, there will always be somebody, there will always be one, a man, a woman, a boy or girl who shows some hunger, who has some interest in the things of God, who's demonstrated in some way a trustworthiness for important things that you could take and pour your life into and reproduce yourself so that this gospel baton is passed along and when you're off the scene, there is somebody to carry it on. And you know what? That, that, that is not settling for something less than real ministry. That is real ministry. That is the most important legacy that any of us could ever leave in any ministry context was to reproduce ourselves and some other individuals. But listen, remember the context here because if we don't remember the context, it's easy for us to do some weird things with this discipleship stuff. I, I, I want you to know that I am all about meeting with somebody on a weekly basis for Bible study and, and Scripture memorization and accountability. All of those things are important. But understand... 
that we can do all of those things our entire lives with people and never and never lead them to a place where they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, are able to articulate it so that they can pass it on to other people. Discipleship, disciple-making, reproductive disciple-making has to do with the transference of the gospel from one generation to the next. And God's plan for doing that is not on the Internet. It is not a flash drive. It is not a DVD. It is the multiplication of life on on life, reproducing generation after generation. And that's what we've been called to do. You can always, you can always find, even if it's just one person, a way to do that in any ministry context. So, the third thing Paul says here, he exhorts Timothy to is share in the suffering for the gospel. It's what verse 3 says. Share in the suffering is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He uses a triple compound word here in the language of the New Testament. It's a, it's a word that combines the word suffer and bad and with. And it essentially means what it says. It means to join with others in suffering under bad things. Paul's already used it back over there in chapter 1. And he told Timothy in verse 8, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel. You know what he tells him? He says, look, this is implicit in this deal. It is implicit in the gospel. It is implicit in ministry leadership. If you and I, under the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, are developing devoted disciples that look like Onesiphorus, and we're looking like Onesiphorus, there's going to be some pushback. There's going to be resistance. The natural thing is that there is some stuff that is going to come against this. And, and Paul just simply tells Timothy, he tells Timothy, just d- d- do this. It's almost like he, he wrote him, he sent him this inspired text or email and said, suck it up, bro. Suck it up. This is part of the deal. And while that seems insensitive, just to look at him and say, man, just do your part. Share in the sufferings for the gospel. It seems insensitive. We know it's not because he's already addressed him in verse 1 with the paternal expression, my child, as he was telling him, the resources of heaven stand available to you to get this done. That is not insensitive. Paul's cashing a check in the bank of the resources of heaven saying, I can tell you, suck it up, man. Stay in there. You do your part in this deal because you're part of a family of runners here who have access to the eternal resources of heaven. You you can do this thing. And I need to remember that every time I find myself beating my head against a wall or feeling like I'm not going anywhere, I can't be effective or I can't get this done or or that done. This this is what the Apostle Paul says. And it it seems that I'm concerned about this, that there are a number, there are a number of ministry leaders out there that that have missed this. And and seem to think that what being a pastor or a ministry leader is today is about being in a good situation, quote, end quote. I don't know how many times I've had guys say, do you know a good church that I might might give my resume to? Listen, when you look at the pastorate in the New Testament, the pastorate wasn't about being in a good situation. It was about being in a war zone. And shepherding people in the midst of that so that this gospel baton can be passed from one generation to the next. 
And Paul cautions Timothy about thinking that what the norm is, what the norm is, is to be in some place where everything's clicking in all cylinders, where your ministry gifts are exactly matched with those circumstances and the situation, and everything is just kind of smooth sailing. He says, no. Not with a gospel race. Not when you're carrying this baton. There's going to be some hardship. There's going to be some suffering. There's going to be difficult people. There's going to be people who don't want to follow. There's going to be people who want you to get out of the way. There's going to be all kinds of resistance. And the Apostle Paul says, share in the suffering. You have been privileged to be included in that. He told the the Philippians, for you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. This is a privilege that you and I have been counted worthy, he says, to be attached, associated with this thing. And then he comes to the illustrations. and It really doesn't take us long to do this because these illustrations, and there are three of them, really are are all pointing in the same direction. Paul gives three illustrations that help us make application and answer the question, how do we do this? What what, what is it that's going to take in our character, in our person, for this to happen? What does God want to manifest in His grace? And and, and I think he, he mentions three things. One is denial, and one is discipline, and one is diligence. Denial is represented by the soldier who doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. The soldier doesn't, doesn't get to spend as, as much time on Facebook and Twitter doing mindless things. He doesn't get to, 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 to watch as many college football games. He, he doesn't get to have as much time off. He, he doesn't have as much precious time with his family as maybe the normal person is out there. He has to deny himself of certain things that seem to go along with the civilian life for the sake of this gospel. I've seen too many guys, seen too many girls that have come into the Christian experience, the ministry leadership experience, thinking that it was just going to look exactly like the normal person out there, but just got this different career, this different title. And Paul says, no, it's not happening. And he says, discipline, it takes discipline. And the athlete here has to compete according to the rules. You've got to pass the baton in the prescribed lane there. And, and that means that it, it includes self-control and, and saying no to some things that you might otherwise say yes to for the sake of the gospel. And then diligence, translated, hard work, the hard-working farmer. This is something that will wear you out. Listen to me very carefully. This ministry that we do... Teaching on the faculty of a seminary, guys and ladies, being a pastor of a local church in another ministry leadership context, we know this. This can be the most tiring, exacting, uh, energy-sucking ministry life work that anybody could ever have if we apply ourselves to it. But listen, it also can be the easiest. It is a seedbed for laziness, the self-supervision, the independent schedules... Nobody looking over your shoulder all the time. It's a seedbed for laziness. And it's only by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, that we give ourselves to this and spend our lives wearing ourselves out for this. The fumbling of the baton was not the only irony in the 1988 Olympics with our sprint relay team. There was a guy named Carl Lewis, then considered the fastest human on the planet who was on our team. He ran the anchor leg. But we were so loaded with talent that the coach decided to use some of the other guys in the race in the preliminaries, knowing that they would qualify, and then he would put the A team in. 
in the finals. Carl Rulis never got to run because our team was disqualified in a preliminary race. Think about the irony of that. Fastest guy on the planet never got to run in the race. Today, I'm looking at a room filled with the most gifted people on the planet and we're all here to get some more equipping, some more equipping to run this race. Let's commit ourselves. Let's resolve together not to allow the most gifted people on the planet never to get to participate or to be disqualified from participating because we didn't provide a stable target, we didn't run with endurance, and we didn't hand off with a steady hand. I want to ask you to bow your heads, but I want you to keep your eyes open and look at your Bible. And I want you to look at verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Would you take just a moment as you look at that verse and you read it and reread it to think over what Paul has said here? And would you ask God, would you ask God to give you that otherworldly power today? To provide a stable target, to run your leg with endurance, and to pass this gospel baton in a steady way to those who come behind you. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.